Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. At Vertex, we know the pace of global commerce is increasing, which makes managing tax more complex. And your enterprise systems weren't built to handle that tax complexity. This is where we come in with our platform that enables continuous compliance giving you more transparency, improved accuracy, and better confidence in your tax data. To learn more about continuous compliance, visit vertexinc.com. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry, only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Welcome to a special episode of Political Currency with Ed Balls and George Osborne. This is Inside the Room, the Coalition Talks, a deep dive into a momentous period in British political history, a time in which uh, both of us were participants in these big unfolding events, a period which we think actually is really important to understand if you want to understand what's going on today in British politics. So we're taking you back to five days in May 2010. And those are the days between the general election of the 6th of May and the formation of the first coalition government in modern British history on the 11th of May. And that's relevant not only because it's an interesting bit of history, but of course, by the end of 2024, we might have another hung parliament and our political successors might be facing the same choices that we faced back then. Let's remind ourselves what happened on Tuesday, the 11th of May, 2010. My constitutional duty is to make sure that a government can be formed following last Thursday's general election. I've informed the Queen's private secretary that it's my intention to tender my resignation to the Queen. In the event that the Queen accepts, I shall advise her to invite the leader of the opposition to seek to form a government. I wish the next Prime Minister well as he makes the important choices for the future. Her Majesty the Queen has asked me to form a new government and I have accepted. Our country has a hung parliament where no party has an overall majority and we have some deep and pressing problems. A huge deficit, deep social problems and a political system in need of reform. For those reasons, I aim to form a proper and full coalition between the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats. So George's mate David Cameron becomes Prime Minister. My old boss Gordon Brown bows out after a long period at the top of British politics. That was after five days of argument and debate, but also negotiations starting on the Thursday evening. A very unusual period, not something that we'd seen in our adult lifetimes, 
the formation of a coalition, the first since the wartime coalition of the Second World War, actually the first negotiated coalition in peacetime since 1918. Normally, on general election night, you go to bed and wake up in the morning to find who is the new prime minister. But when this exit poll dropped on Thursday, the 6th of May, nothing was said. 10 o'clock. And this is what we're saying. It's going to be a hung parliament. The Conservatives on 307, Labour on 255, the Liberal Democrats on 59. If it is correct, I think what it does show is a clear rejection of Gordon Brown. Well, it's very strange. All of us should show a degree of humility at this stage. If that's right, the Liberal Democrats, despite all that noise and fury, have actually dropped three seats. I don't think there's any question at all of Labour being able to continue in office. This is a massive rejection of the Labour Party. So I find it extraordinary uh, listening to those Labour politicians okay. on your program. The first question is, uh, can the Prime Minister form a government? And Gordon Brown's the Prime Minister. And um, so I think we have to wait and see, Jeremy. What did you think when the exit poll dropped? Well, I wasn't completely surprised, partly because the exit poll had been leaked to us about 30 minutes earlier. And I was up in my house in the Peak District and we'd had a conference call. This was all pre-Zoom days and Microsoft Teams and all that. So it was just a regular telephone conference call with David Cameron and his key advisors. And we were discussing how to handle things. And to be honest, in the couple of weeks leading up to the general election, we had begun, David and I, to think this was a pretty likely result and started to do some preparation. But where were you on the night? I was at home in Castleford with a vet. We'd both come back from uh, the final hours of our campaigns. And we both thought the Conservatives would, would, would win a majority, although that wasn't certain. I'd spent a couple of hours that evening writing four different speeches for my count, whether there was a hung parliament or a Tory majority, and whether I won my seat and whether I lost my seat, because the um, hung parliament where I lost was not the one I was expecting. But a Tory majority, I could have lost my seat. I think that we were surprised there wasn't a Tory majority in particular surprised that the Liberal Democrat vote wasn't as good as we expected. Nick Clegg had had a very strong campaign. We thought the Liberal Democrats would win more seats. In fact, the number of seats they won fell on that night. But fundamentally, for us, it didn't change anything. We'd been in power for 13 years. We assumed we were going to lose, and we lost. We assumed, as cabinet ministers, our time in government had ended. And when the exit poll dropped, the question was, well, exactly how will Cameron govern, but was he going to be the prime minister? As far as we were concerned, definitely. So I started off the evening feeling quite calm, even though it was a hung parliament. And I have to say, over the following five days, it got a lot more panicky. But we've got a guest on our show, have we not? Uh, for the first time, we've got a guest in the studio. And uh, that is someone else who was watching the exit poll, someone else who was a, just been elected to, well, re-elected to parliament. And that was the Liberal Democrat MP, very good friend of mine now, not such a good friend back then, Danny Alexander. Sir Danny Alexander, who has flown in from his important government job in Beijing, especially, we believe at least, to be with us in our studio in Shoreditch. Danny, very, very good to see you. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I, I can say this was not the only reason for me to fly in, but it was definitely one of them. And where were you that night when you saw the exit poll? I mean, Nick Clegg had stormed the debates Everybody thought you'd had a great campaign. You must have thought you were going to see the number of Lib Dem seats go up. So what was the reaction when the exit poll dropped? So I was in Inverness. Um, I'd been, you know, campaigning as we Lib Dems do till the last second before the polls uh, closed. And 
I think I was probably in the hotel catching a bit of a bit of rest and saw the exit poll and spoke to Nick about it. I think our feeling was exactly like you said, we'd expected to win a few more seats. And of course, you don't know until the result actually comes. But still, there was a wee bit of disappointment from that point of view. But at the same time, we could see with the hung parliament, there was an opportunity. And it was an opportunity that we'd been preparing for for the previous six months or so. You know, the, the, we'll come to it, but the team that was doing the negotiating had also been a team doing the preparation. I wrote the manifesto. I was in charge of that team. And so we'd been kind of wargaming different options for six months on and off up until polling day. So you were much better prepared than either of us were, although we in the Conservatives had been doing a bit of preparation. I'd been asked by David Cameron with Oliver Letwin, one of my colleagues, and David Cameron's chief of staff, Ed Llewellyn, who's now our ambassador to Italy, to think through just a couple of weeks before the election what a hung parliament might look like. But let's take us now to the first full day. So we've had the exit poll. We've all been re-elected as MPs around this table. And we all make our way back to London. I was one of the first to arrive because I got the 6.30 flight from Inverness. It was that or not arriving at all on the Friday. <laughs> right. So here we are. It's Friday the 7th of May. And let's remind ourselves of the news headlines this day. I want to make a big, open and comprehensive offer to the Liberal Democrats. David Cameron offers a deal to Nick Clegg after the general election ends in a hung parliament. Mr Clegg says he will listen to what the Conservatives have to offer. It is now for the Conservative Party to prove that it is capable of seeking to govern in the national interest. But the man with the keys to number 10 is Gordon Brown, still Prime Minister and now waiting for others to decide his fate. Mr Cameron and Mr Clegg should clearly be entitled to take as much time as they feel necessary. For my part, I should make clear that I would be willing to see any of the party leaders. So let's start in Downing Street. Let's start with Gordon Brown. What What's the mood like there? I mean, presumably people, as you're saying just now, Ed, were expecting to have left by this point. And yet you all suddenly find yourselves back in the building, working out what to do next. But what's the mood like? And what, what's Gordon's mood like? You worked with him for 20 odd years. How's he feeling about things? I think Gordon had a big job to persuade people that this wasn't all over. I mean, a lot of people had been on the TV overnight Thursday into Friday. David Blunkett famously saying that Labour's lost and um, that's it. Gordon rang me and said, you've got to come down to London because, you know, there's issues to sort out. And I said, well, you know, really? Because isn't it all done? But he was talking a lot to Andrew Adonis, who was persuading him. Andrew Adonis, former SDP campaigner, close to the Liberal Democrats, had become a cabinet minister in the Brown government. And he was saying, constitutionally, there is a choice here. And don't listen to all those people saying that Labour's lost, that it's about um, leaving in a dignified way. It's still all to play for. The Liberal Democrats won't be able to go into a coalition with the Conservatives. That's too much of a break from the last hundred years of history. And I think Gordon's mindset was that he had been taking the country through the financial crisis and he wanted to finish that job. And he was thinking, well, both duty 
And constitutional propriety meant he couldn't just walk away from that if there was a possibility that he might need to do more. But as I said, lots of scepticism around. Interestingly, his staff members, when they're summoned back into Downing Street on the Friday morning, they can't get into their computers because all their passwords have been disabled. I mean, as far as the civil service is concerned, as far as all of us were concerned, Labour was was out. And there was this big process to go through Friday, trying to keep some semblance of the Labour government in operation. And Danny, you've arrived back in London. This is the moment, not arguably, not just you and Nick Clegg have been preparing for for six months, but the Liberal Democrats have been preparing for for decades. This is the moment when you have the balance of power in your hands. And Clegg makes this quite sort of straightforward position clear. He's already said it before the election, which is, OK, it's up to you, David Cameron, to make the first offer. Why does he do that? And again, what's the mood? I think people underestimate that, there, as you mentioned, there must have been a bit of disappointment that the, you know, you've lost seats. But in fact, you're in the strongest position the party's been in, certainly in my lifetime. So there was some disappointment. I think there was also a lot of calm because at that stage, we were not sure what David Cameron would be willing to offer. And although we hadn't won as many seats as we'd expected, we'd done pretty well in the share of the vote. Nick, had, as, as Ed said, Nick had had a very good campaign. He'd focused on certain things. And so we were wait, we really were waiting to see, is the Conservative Party capable of offering something that is sufficient to enable us actually to have a decent conversation with them? We just didn't know if that would be possible or not. Did you assume there would be a conversation as opposed to David Cameron just saying, look, you know, I'm the person who um, is the biggest party leader and I should be allowed to form a government and then further down the track persuade you that uh, there was a way to work together? I mean, did you did you assume that he would be up for um, more formal talks? Yeah, I mean, there'd been one or two calls on polling day. I spoke to Ed Llewellyn. I think I was driving to Nethy Bridge to visit the polling station and my phone went on. There was Ed saying, let's be ready for a call uh, on Friday morning, you, you if were necessary. also you weren't just an MP; you were the chief of staff, weren't you? Or, I was or... the chief of staff for for Nick. I was the author of the manifesto and the chair of this of this group. So I was the kind of focal point. And then, so and it so, wasn't just that you were ready to talk. You knew that the Cameron team was ready to talk to you. Well, also, and the Labour team, by the way. So I'd had exchanges of message with Peter Mandelson, who, was, no who, was, who was at the more uh, enthusiastic end of the spectrum, let's say, uh, on no, your side of the spectrum. There was no Labour team, really, though. I mean, there'd been no discussions in the Cabinet. I'd not spoken to Gordon Brown once. I turned out Mandelson to be in the Labour team. was going behind your back, Ed. We've already no, discovered something I turned out to be in the Labour currency. team. Uh, honestly, I don't think Labour had had, had any conversations about no, and that was any quite, possibility of there being a deal. That was, nothing, no preparation at all. That was quite clear when we came to have the conversations with you, which I'm sure we'll come to in a couple of days' time. Yeah, so I think it's interesting. The big, big call that Cameron makes that morning is to offer the coalition, right. a big, generous offer of a coalition. And we had considered over a number of previous weeks whether we should try and govern as a minority, whether to have what's called a supply and confidence arrangement, which is when you govern, but you've got some commitment from other parties that they'll back your budget and won't kick you out. But uh, David had asked me a couple of weeks earlier to start thinking about policies that might form the basis of a coalition agreement. And he then spends that Friday morning. We're in the Park Plaza Hotel, by the way, on the other side of Westminster Bridge, which is where we've been staying during the general election rather than in all our different homes. And uh, he had already put calls in to kind of key party figures like Ian Duncan Smith, John Major, uh, Ken Clark, Liam Fox. These were all characters who were going to be influential in what the Conservative Party thought about this. 
And then I think he makes the big decision to try to grab the microphone. He he goes to what's called St. Stephen's Club. It's a place in Westminster. And he goes on the steps and does this as a public offer to the Liberal Democrats rather than just a private one. Was it obvious that he could pull that off? I mean, you know, within the Conservative Party, he was supposed to win a majority. He hadn't done so. To be told, no, we're going to do a deal with the Liberal Democrats, wasn't that quite controversial internally? Well, it's interesting. It didn't become controversial, but we were very nervous that it would. And one of the reasons we were trying to drive the pace was because we thought the longer people start to think, hold on, Cameron hasn't won the election, the Tories haven't won, that things would start to unravel for us and unravel not just for the Conservatives' electoral position, but potentially for the leadership's position inside the Conservative Party. So we were very keen to crack on with it. And there was an offer that came that day from the Cabinet Secretary, Gus O'Donnell, which is you can start formal coalition talks in a government building. This is for Friday. He says you can start tomorrow on Saturday. And he gave us a choice. He says we can have a building in South London somewhere, an anonymous government building. You can do it inside the House of Commons, which has got lots of entrances so you can not be seen going in and out. Or you can do it in number 70 Whitehall, which is the cabinet office right next to 10 Downing Street. And I remember saying, we're going to number 70 Whitehall. We're going right into the heart of government. And by the way, we want the talks to start tonight. Coming up on Inside the Room, the coalition talks, it wasn't just the Conservatives who were lining up negotiations. Gordon was on the phone to me telling me to get down to London ASAP. More on that next. Hey, it's Sharon, and here's where it gets interesting. Raise your hand if you want Salon Perfect Nails for just $2 a manicure. Yeah, me too. With the Alvin June Manny System, you can say goodbye to expensive services that take hours and hours and love your nails more than ever. I would know I've been doing it for years. Get 20% off your first Manny System with code PERFECTMANNY20 at alvinjune.com slash PERFECTMANNY20. That's PERFECTMANNY20 at alvinjune.com slash PERFECTMANNY20. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back. So we were very, very keen that Friday night to get talking with the Liberal Democrats, get the talks underway, even though we were absolutely shattered. We've been fighting this election for weeks and weeks. Absolutely exhausted. But I remember Danny being part of the other negotiating team. I was with William Hague, who was leading the team, Oliver Letwin and Ed Llewellyn, who we've mentioned. And even though it was exhausting, it was Friday night, we wanted to get going in order precisely to avoid 
the whole thing starting to unravel. No, we had the same feeling because we'd been through all the same options, confidence supply, coalition, and all the intermediate options in between. And we had a kind of test basically to do with the policies that we could put into practice. But also Nick had been consulting with people like Paddy Ashdown, for example, who he listened to very carefully. And Paddy came into the party HQ and then Nick and David spoke on the telephone. I think Nick and Gordon Brown also spoke at that point and informed Gordon that we should talk to the Conservatives first because they'd come first in the in the election, albeit not won outright. Um, and actually that feeling that David Cameron had that he hadn't won the election proved to be a bit of a problem for him as time went on much longer, but not in those uh, negotiations. But the feeling amongst pretty much everybody on the Labour side was that Cameron had not won the election in the way that he wanted. And it wasn't clear whether a deal could be done formally between the Lib Dems and the Conservatives, but the Labour had lost the election. And that was pretty much the universal view. And what was happening that day was that Gordon Brown and Andrew Donis really were trying to persuade lots of people, no, it's still in play, trying to persuade me, trying to persuade Peter Mandelson, trying to persuade Alistair Darning. Lots of people were very sceptical that actually the numbers could add up for Labour just with the Liberal Democrats, that maybe the Lib Dems wouldn't do a deal with the Tories, that we needed to put a policy paper to the Liberal Democrats. As you say, a call was set up between Gordon Brown and Nick Clegg, with Gordon saying we should have talks as well. And he was trying to persuade Nick Clegg, to be honest, he was trying to persuade pretty much the whole Labour cabinet that this was a worthwhile pursuit. And I've got to say, Friday evening, I was pretty unpersuaded. I mean, I think there's some lessons. We'll draw this all to the conclusion at the end of this. But there are some lessons both for Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak. You see, you're describing essentially Sunak's position potentially at the end of this year, which is against expectations. The election result is a hung parliament. Starmer may have more seats. And what you're explaining here, Ed, is that Labour was not united in its position, had not really done much preparational thinking about how to handle coalition talks, whereas the Conservatives were united behind Cameron, at least at, the, at this point on the Friday. And we had done some preparation, but not nearly as much as you guys, Danny, had done where you'd been thinking properly about this and you had a set of tests and you you had already established the key personnel role, whereas we were putting together the teams at the last moment. But, but in relationship terms, I mean, Gordon and Nick Clegg had barely spoken. I'd be very surprised if Alistair Darling had ever spoken to David Laws about the the economy or to you. Tell me if I'm wrong. We certainly hadn't. There's something, I think, different about being a government compared to an opposition. In opposition, there's probably more conversation, opposition to opposition about issues. Government to opposition, more formally done with your opposite number. So the Labour links to the Lib Dems, other than sort of historic ones. I think there were, there were links, but... I mean, Vince Cable, for example, I think did talk to Alistair Darling quite regularly. I yeah, but he was a, totally I, cut out of the talks by you. He was not part of the negotiating team. So we had. As mass- we were told repeatedly. Exactly. Don't so he, talk to Vince, you said. So the point is that Nick was in charge of the party. And, and it's true. Gordon Brown hadn't made. Gordon really, kept trying to talk to Ming Campbell Gordon, or to Gordon Paddy hadn't Ashdown, made much effort to get to know Nick. Yeah. That's quite true. That's right. And, and it was clear when they were having those conversations. I was, I was in some of those conversations. We'll come to the key one later on. There was no effort really made to to understand the personality involved. Um, so if you Keir Starmer or Rishi Sunak, you should be getting to know Ed Davey. You should be getting to know Ed Davey. You should be getting to know all sorts of people. <laughs> right. Okay, so let's let's keep moving. So we've done Friday night. Let's move on now to Saturday. 
signs of progress tonight as David Cameron and Nick Clegg hold a face-to-face -face meeting about forming a new government. They returned home a short while ago after 70 minutes of talks said to be amicable and constructive. Earlier, the party leaders had stood together at a service to mark VE Day, but there's no agreement yet on who'll be the new Prime Minister. But the pressure mounts on the Lib Dems to deliver on their big promise to change the voting system. It is in the interest of everybody in Great Britain for us to use this opportunity to usher in a new politics after the discredited politics. So slightly strange on that Saturday morning to have these post-election VE Day celebrations. So um, David Cameron, Gordon Brown, the Prime Minister at the time, Nick Clegg, all doing this sort of formal ceremonial stuff. Presumably, were you guys at the same time on that Saturday morning back in negotiation? Yes, we were. We had uh, had a very short sleep and we were back in the, this room on the uh, second floor of, of 70 Whitehall. This is one of the oldest government buildings. And there was a moment, of course, we'd met previously in the dark the night before. It was daylight now. And uh, one of the Liberal Democrats asked me, I think it was David Laws, what's that garden we're looking at? Because there was this garden on the other side of the building, which you can see out the window. And I said, that is the 10 Downing Street garden. And that is Gordon Brown's bedroom, I pointed to. And I said, that is how close we are to power you and I, if we get this right, we are right in their backyard and we today can make real progress in putting that off. I don't remember the garden anecdote. I do remember when we started those talks, Gus O'Donnell was desperate to be in the room and so were the civil servants. And the first decision we made was, we're going to do this between the two parties. We don't want official support. We want to discuss among ourselves what policies we can agree on. So we shut the door politely. I thought it was such an important decision. I mean, this is no disrespect to the officials. And Gus O'Donnell all the time was saying, at some point he said, like, Her Majesty the Queen would like to know how you're getting on. Well, Christopher Geitch, you remember, he was the, he, Queen's, private the Queen's private secretary at the time. He would be there after yeah. the meetings finished and he wanted a bit of a debrief on how they were going. But I think not having the civil servants in the room meant that we don't we weren't sort of too bogged down in getting the kind of precise detail of these policies right, That's where the civil servants are unbelievably valuable when you are actually a minister. I remember this other moment when um, Chris Hune, who was one of the teams on the Liberal Democrat side, explains to the Conservative team how the Liberal Democrat Party is going to have to agree what's or ratify what's been signed up to in the room. And he says, you've got to understand there's a federal council and we're going to have to get a... We had a triple lock. It needed the party executive committee, the parliamentary party, and then we had to have a special conference with the Lib Dems to vote the deal through. So honestly, having a tough internal mechanism definitely increased our bargaining power. Whereas uh, <laughs> I remember Chris saying to William Haig, so we know, you know, what's your mechanism? And he said... Well, I don't know if David says it's fine. That's okay. And then he said, you've got to remember with the Conservative Party, Chris, the Conservative Party is a monarchy tempered by regicide. <laughs> that, was our, that was our process. It wasn't quite as straightforward as that. We did have to get, as we'll come on to discover, more support from Conservative MPs. But we had enormous latitude. And we were, of course, doing these negotiations whilst at the same time there was a separate track between David Cameron and Nick Clegg, a private conversation. So there were the formal conversations we were having about policy, what the tax policy would be, spending, you know, green environmental policies, education, 
policies like the pupil premium, constitutional policies. But there was a separate, very important conversation going on between Nick and David about the personnel of a potential coalition, how it would actually work in practice. How would you, you know, who would get what jobs? How many seats in the cabinet would the Liberal Democrats get? Very important things that I think are somewhat neglected in the kind of focus on the policy. I'm not saying policy is not important, but these were also very important discussions that were being had. What's going on in the in Downing Street at this point? Well, look, Gordon Brown is boiling with frustration because he's been told by Nick Clegg that um, he's going to talk to the Conservatives first. And Gordon is embodying the mismatch between the reality of how British politics works and the challenge of coalition formation. Because, you know, if this was Germany or the Netherlands, you might be starting a two, three-month process of negotiation. Whereas on the Saturday morning, the headline in the Sun newspaper was, there is a squatter in Downing Street. A squatter, you know, a man in his late 50s, picture of Gordon Brown. I mean, Gordon Brown was seen to be behaving illegitimately by not leaving Downing Street because the papers wanted to say he'd lost the election. And of course, that was what many people thought. I had quite a fraught conversation with Gordon because he'd spoken to Nick Clegg the night before. I think Danny on the Saturday morning had said it would be okay for there to be an informal conversation between um, the Liberal Democrats and Labour. I said to Gordon on the phone, you've got to get back to Scotland. You cannot allow the optics of it looking like you are just holed up in Downing Street, clinging on to power. Go back to Scotland and be with your family and let events unfold. And Gordon said to me, well, I will only go back to Scotland if you'll come down and be part of these negotiations with the Liberal Democrats. And I said, well, like, you know, I'm in Yorkshire. And he said, you've got to do it. And if you don't leave now, you won't be in time. So Gordon agreed to fly to Scotland. I um, raced out to our car, dodged an ITV camera, drove off, stopped and filled the car with petrol at Trowell Motorway Services Stations at, at Nottingham, realised I'd left so fast I'd taken no wallet, no money at all. So I had no There was really no money left. Yeah, there was no... And I had... Well, yeah, let's, yeah good grief, Danny. And um, <laughs> so... so Ed, Ed is that, quite touchy about the letter. Uh, we've, we've discovered on this podcast. <laughs> anyway, so I had not taken my wallet um, for negotiations, not realising that the Liberal Democrats were about to capitulate to austerity in their talks simultaneously. I had to ring a and say, I can't pay for the petrol I've just filled the car up with. She had to ring the service station and read out the credit card to persuade them to accept this so I could carry on driving into our talks in the afternoon. Of course, the other thing which then happened in this period, I think the thing which actually provoked Gordon to go was his briefing to John Sopel on the BBC Saturday morning from the Liberal Democrats to say that it had been a terrible phone call between Gordon Brown and Nick Clegg. And John Sopel reported how bad this has been and how upset Nick Clegg had been at his treatment by Gordon Brown, who was doing one of his sort of brusque Gordon conversations. And so that it was the first time where politics actually really started to get into the detail of the negotiation. Gordon was quite upset about that. I think this turns out to be quite an important question during this period, which is there's a sense that Labour disrespect Clegg, that um, Brown in his conversations is very kind of dismissive or brusque, that we've touched on it already a lot of the Labour figures are reaching out to other Liberal Democrats, not Clegg. They're reaching out to Vince Cable or Ming Campbell or Paddy Ashdown. But of course, none of those people are the party leader. I, I think there's a very important lesson, by the way, again, for Sunak and Starmer, 
this year, which is you've got to treat the people you want to be in government with you with respect right from the beginning. Do you think, looking back on it, Ed, that that's fair, that there was a mistake, that the tone was wrong? And interesting to hear what you think, Danny, because you were on the receiving end of all this. I don't think there was um, deep political links with Nick Clegg in the, the way there was for Gordon with Vince Cable or Ming Campbell. He was not seen as being on the Labour side of the Liberal Democrats. He wasn't seen as being hugely predisposed to working with Labour. I don't think any of us ever believed that Nick Clegg wanted to do a deal with um, Labour. And the constitutional principle that he had invented, which is that I'll speak to the party with the biggest vote and the largest number of seats, we all assumed was a way of him avoiding talking to Labour. And if you look kind of in retrospect at what people would look back um, on that period and say, was that, you know, if it hadn't been for Europe, Nick Clegg might have been a conservative. He wasn't really Labour inclined. And therefore, and I think that undoubtedly shaped part of Gordon's view. I think that is right. And I think it was probably a mistake. Although, let's be honest, as we'll see in the days which unfold, a lot of politics was played on this relationships right. but, front. But, but, but I you're think, shaking your head, Danny. At that I, point. I think there's something else going on here, which is more political and not personal, which is that we certainly formed the view that if we were going to talk to the Labour Party, it had to be on the basis that Gordon Brown, who'd been the Prime Minister who'd lost the election, would not be the Prime Minister anymore. And so... Um, and why had, why did you come to that conclusion? Because we'd, we'd been through this election campaign where he was the leader. He was the one who'd embodied everything that, that Labour was offering. And he'd been defeated. And though David Cameron hadn't won, Gordon Brown had definitely lost. And so we thought that the optics of putting Gordon Brown back into number 10 was just politically impossible. I think that's fair enough, but that is not what Nick Clegg had said to Gordon on the phone on the Friday. That is not what was discussed in our discussion on the Saturday. If you remember, when we had those talks in Portcullis House on Saturday afternoon, they were quite short, they were quite amicable. Uh, at one point, Chris Hewn said, we have to raise the issue of Gordon Brown and whether he can carry on. And you shut him down and said, no, Chris, that is not for discussion here. That's not for this meeting. And so we, of course, knew that was probably the view of some Lib Dems, but it wasn't being talked about. That didn't really but arise in the conversations until the Sunday. But it wasn't one for that meeting. That's because there was another meeting planned on the Sunday for Nick and Gordon to talk about that very question. Fair enough. So that's we a very, all thought we were in a non-meeting and we were right. So what we were trying to do in that meeting was to see whether you guys were united and serious. And you definitely weren't united. And there were different levels of seriousness around on your side. Um, Perhaps. I think it was actually kind of quite a and, and also, I, I remember, you, I remember you made a comment in that meeting, which was, which was about the numbers. And of course, in politics, numbers don't lie. And could you keep all your people united? And I think John Reid had just been out on the airwaves that yeah. day saying, there's no way we should be staying on in government. We lost nearly 100 seats. The biggest loss in our history, apart from 1931. And I think if we now decide that we're just going to cock a snoop at the electorate or look that way, that the electorate will wreak vengeance on us and we will suffer most grievously in the future. So it was already becoming clear that there was a small and maybe growing group of Labour MPs who didn't want to be part of this. And Peter Mandelson was there saying, well, you don't worry, I can get the Democratic Unionists on side, which, you know, we saw later on. Shades of Theresa May what, 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 If you was, were picking up that there was scepticism in the room on the Saturday amongst a number of us that this could actually be delivered, you were you were right. But it wasn't it wasn't hostile. It wasn't, no, 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 it wasn't hostile. There was no arguments. It was quite pleasant. It was just all quite difficult. It wasn't hostile. No, no, I agree with that. But it, But it was... In a sense, again, this is not really about feelings. This is about facts. And the, the, what we discerned as a fact from your group was that a lot of you didn't think it could work. 
not out of ill will or bad feeling, but just you didn't think it could work. Look, we so, were quite surprised to be in the negotiating team. weren't totally sure what the negotiation <laughs> was about. weren't sure what our end game was supposed to be. I mean, it was you know we were all all doing our best, but we weren't quite sure what the hell was going on. To yeah. be honest. So look, we're now two days on from the general election, and I think it's fair to say none of us at this point feel like we're on the edge of forming a government or that these coalition talks are working particularly. I think I'd said earlier in this show that I was uh, calm when the exit poll dropped. I thought we'd be in office. This is the point as we start to get into Sunday where I'm beginning to think, my God, this could all be off. This is all falling apart. It was looking pretty shaky for the Conservatives. But look, you're going to have to come back and listen to the second part of this Inside the Room to hear how things got unblocked and how it all ended up with David Cameron in Downing Street just a few days later. Coming up on Inside the Room, the coalition talks. You looked Gordon Brown in the eyes and you told him he had to go. Is that true? This is one of the more interesting meetings of my political life. Yes, join us on Thursday to hear what Danny has to say for himself. We'll see you then for the second part of Inside the Room, the coalition talks. This has been a Persephonica production. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code GLOW. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas... You will be timed. <laughs> <laughs> you will be right <laughs> Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com <laughs>